and good morning. It's good to see everyone. Uh, thank you, Jordan. The songs really ministered to me this morning. It's just good to it's good to hear our voices together. Um, it's always been good, but particularly after the last year when we've experienced so much separation, it's just really it's a special thing. So it's grateful to experience that this morning with you all. Um, well, we're in Acts. We're going to press on in Acts this morning. Before we do, uh, go ahead and bring up the first slide, um, Lester, if you would. Does anyone know who this is? I'm sure some of you know who this is. Louder? Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, he is one of my spiritual heroes. Wow, I'm going to start crying just talking about him. <laughs> I did not expect that. Whew. Everyone knows I have a newborn at home and I'm not getting a lot of sleep, right? Um, <laughs> um, yeah, he is someone I want to live like. Wow, I feel like Angel. Just got one sentence in. <laughs> oh, man. Um, so for those of you who do not know, or even if you do know his story, I'm just going to re- quickly recap it. Um, Bonhoeffer was a brilliant philosopher, theologian in uh, Germany, in the Nazi era Germany. And um, he uh, resisted the Reich um, and <clears throat> spoke powerfully against Hitler in pretty early on, earlier than a lot of people were even in Germany. And um, he, uh, what's amazing, there's so many things that are amazing about his story. And if you want to learn more, I really recommend there's a book by a guy named Charles Marsh called Strange Glory. That's um, my, I've read a f- few biographies of him. It's my favorite one. Um, but uh, one of the amazing things about Bonhoeffer was that he, uh, he actually got out of Germany because he was, as, as you know, um, people who resisted the Reich and resisted um, Hitler's regime were, were targets, and so Bonhoeffer was. Um, he actually operated a secret uh, underground seminary called Finkenwald. Um, was one of the many things he did. Um, but anyways, he actually got uh, out. He got out of Germany. This is what is so amazing about him. He got out of Germany. Was uh, essentially snuck out by other philosopher theologians, people who respected his brilliance and knew that he was an important figure. They got him out of the country safely and to America, and he was out of America. I believe it was under a year. And um, he said, I can't, this is what gets me about him. I can't stay here safely while my people are suffering. Um, And so he went back. He went, man, I'm sorry. I did not think I was going to be so emotional talking about this. Um, He went back to Germany knowing what was ahead of him. Much like Paul going into Jerusalem, which is what we're going to talk about this morning, knowing what was ahead of him. He went back to Germany, and that choice eventually landed him in a concentration camp um, where he was executed, and he was executed two weeks. Two weeks before that camp was liberated by the Allied forces. He died young. Brilliant, brilliant man of God who centered his life around Christ. And if you want to read something by him, that's very easy to read and very powerful. His book on the Psalms, it's called the Psalms, the prayer book of the Bible. It's an amazing book. Um, So that's Bonhoeffer. Um, I thought about him a lot this week um, because there was something about him 
And I've read a lot of his writings. Um, There's something about him that equipped him to stand courageously, humbly, and confidently in the face of profoundly corrupt worldly powers, um, even spiritual powers, even, even at the cost of his own life, knowingly walking into what he walked into. So I've just been thinking about him a lot this week because I've been meditating on Paul and thinking about Paul and the decisions Paul made. And, and as other uh, sermons have, have gone over, I believe even Ken talked about this last week, people counseled Paul not to go back to Jerusalem. They told him not to. They didn't want him to. They didn't want to lose him, and he still went. So there's obvious parallels between him and, and Bonhoeffer's decisions. So I've just been asking a lot, especially just, I mean, thinking about worldly powers and the toxicity of our political climate and the spirit of the age right now. Just been thinking, what equipped people like Bonhoeffer, people like Paul, people like untold millions of unsung Christian martyrs? So the question before us now is, what will Paul do at this intersection? What will he do as he stands here? What can we learn from what he does? What does it look like to hold firm to resurrection hope in the midst of this troubling intersection? So let's, let's read a few verses from Acts 24. Follow along with me if you have. I'm reading from the NIV. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 9. Five days later, the high priest, Jewish priest, Ananias, went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, Tertullus and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. Let me just break this down for a second. Jewish high priest Ananias goes to Caesarea, the um, military garrison of the Roman Empire, with Jewish elders and a lawyer, right? You see the combination of all of these things to present Paul's uh, accusation before the Roman governor. It's a crazy intersection of all these powers. Uh, Verse 2, when Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Paul. Listen to this. I'm going to come back to this in a second. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you to the governor, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing. The other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. So I want to emphasize here the way that Tertullus engages with Felix, the governor. I want to emphasize this briefly because I'm going to compare it to the way Paul does. This this opening of Tertullus's speech is known as, in Latin, it's known as a captatio benevolentiae. Captatio benevolentiae. This is a a technique that um, people would use to basically flatter the judge, flatter the presiding power to secure their favor. Like, it's like buttering them up, basically. I mean, listen to, listen to some of these words. Starting in verse 2. We've enjoyed a long period of peace. Your foresight has brought about reforms. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. Uh, and then he says, but in order not to tire you, he's like, he's just completely pandering this guy. I don't want to tire you with, I don't want to tire you with continuing to compliment you because I basically could keep complimenting you, but I'm going to stop here so that I don't try your patience. That's basically what he's doing. I mean, it's over the top. And what's, if that's not troubling enough, what's super troubling is verse nine says the other Jews, the high priests, the elders, these elites join in all of this, asserting that these things are true. So what's going on here? Now, we, it's not obvious from this text, but I did some research on this and it's well documented. It's well documented um, in 
sources like Josephus and other uh, extra-biblical historical sources, it's well documented that all of these things are lies. Felix was hugely corrupt. Felix was repressive. His reforms were hated. He was so repressive that revolutionary activity spikes under his governance, and there's more violence under his governance um, than there had been before. And we're going to get a glimpse of his corruption because later in the text it says that he detains Paul for two years hoping that Paul will bribe him. And here you have this guy flattering him and all of the Jewish leaders jumping in and saying, yes, this is true, this is true. Things have greatly improved under you, Felix. We love your reign. You're a wise ruler. None of that's true. So what do we have here? Just to put a fine point on it, Jewish religious leaders falsely flattering a corrupt Roman pagan judge in an attempt to manipulate politics to get their way to get Paul silenced. I think this reveals how desperate they were to silence him and, and how threatened they felt by what he was saying. And I want to emphasize the contrast here with the opening of Paul's speech. Let's look at, let's look at what Paul says. when it, get, he, it basically becomes his turn to talk. After all this, look in verse 10. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. That's Paul's opening. I recognize you're the judge, so I'm glad I can speak to you. Paul has no interest in lying, in flattering, in manipulating, in playing political power games. I think that contrast is I could not stop thinking about that contrast this week as I thought about this chapter. Paul's calm, confident honesty in front of a man who literally has the power of his life and death in his hands. Keep in mind, this is the same man, this is the same Paul who wrote those famous and controversial words in his letter to the Roman church. He said, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Romans 13. We see this. I think we see him living that here. It doesn't... now. He's not being meek, being rolling over, being a a doormat or something. He's being subject. He's presenting himself. I'm glad I can speak to you. I'm glad I can give you my defense, Felix. I recognize your authority in this situation. Let's skip down. I'm going to read the heart. So essentially, Paul, I'm not going to read the whole chapter. We don't have time for that. But Paul presents his defense to Felix. And this is what I'm kind of calling the heart of his defense here. It starts in verse 14. So follow this along with me. Paul says, however, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way. I admit that I worship the God of the Jews, but that I am a part of this uh, um, following that follows Jesus, which they call a sect. He goes on, I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. And down in verse 21, he says, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. So this drives, I think, at the heart, that that driving question of what equips and frees people like Bonhoeffer and Paul to stand and do what they do, it's the conviction in the resurrection that's what Paul names here in his defense to Felix. A conviction, a conviction, mind you, that is based completely on the resurrection of Jesus. How else would Paul have had a conviction in the resurrection? He encountered the risen Jesus. That conviction that there is a resurrection undergirds his profound confidence, I believe, his profound confidence in the face of all of this corruption. That is, I mean, he is, he is swimming in the soup of corruption, whether it's the Jewish leaders who are lying or the Roman official who's trying to play power games. I mean, he's standing right in the middle of all of that with this resurrection hope, freeing him to stand confidently. 
So how, the question then, how does the conviction and the resurrection equip him in this way? This is where I want to try to relate it to us a bit. And I've used this example before, but I, I do believe that what you believe will happen at the end equips and impacts how you live now. What you believe will happen at the end of all things equips how you live in this moment. So for example, an inmate, um, I get this analogy from N.T. Wright, I use it a lot, uh, someone who's in prison who knows that one day their sentence will end and that they have a loving family to return to will live in that prison profoundly differently than someone who does not have any of that end hope. Similarly, those of us who live in this world with a belief, listen to this, that somehow, and I can't explain this, it's a belief, somehow our lives and our deeds as they are lived and done in faith will somehow be part of an everlasting, redeemed, resurrected, renewed creation at the end of all things, God's kingdom without end. If we believe that somehow that is what's coming, that equips us to live in a way that's decisively different now from those who do not have that conviction. And I think this is exactly what we see revealed in Paul's interaction with Felix in this chapter. Paul's interaction with the political powers of Rome, especially as you compare it to how the Jewish leaders interacted with those same powers without that uh, resurrection hope. Because again, the Jewish leaders leverage flattery and lies in an attempt to manipulate the politics of their day. And Felix also doesn't have resurrection hope, detains Paul for two years because he was hoping Paul would bribe him to get him out. Paul was there for two years. That's an easy detail to breeze over. And he lived in that faithfully. That's in verse 26. uh, It says that Felix is hoping Paul would give him some money. Interestingly, it's right after part of Paul's defense to him is that I've been going and collecting alms for our people in Jerusalem. So part of me wonders if Felix was hoping that maybe he would skim some of off of that collection, which is profoundly corrupt if you think about it. Paul's getting money for poor Jewish people in Jerusalem under the Roman power. Um, Anyways, corruption is all over this text. So how do we hold the resurrection hope today? Because it's quite obvious to me, you know, I've gotten through this whole thing without really directly referencing our current political climate. Um, or even broader than politics, just our cultural climate. It's, it's obvious to me, it's probably obvious to all of us, that this entire landscape around us is profoundly devoid of resurrection hope. I think that when you lose a grip, when you lose the grip on resurrection hope, or rather I should rephrase that, when resurrection hope loses its grip on you, it's so easy to slide into things like anxiety or cynicism. And yeah, I could point to examples in politics. You can point to examples on both the right and the left of this, right? Whether it's a worship of political power or a cynical repudiation of it and saying, burn it all down, or a profound fear because the wrong quote-unquote party is in power, whatever. Examples abound, right? This is not a part one partisan thing. This is all over the whole system. I do believe the resurrection and ascension and current lordship of Christ frees us from all of those things. It freed Paul to stand before Felix. It freed Bonhoeffer to walk back into Nazi-era Germany and give his life. But let me be clear. This is not a, hear me on this, this is not a you need to be like Paul and Bonhoeffer exhortation. That would probably be disheartening. Bonhoeffer is way smarter than me. I'll never be as smart as him. (laughs) Um, This is not a be like them. But it is, listen to this, it is a you have access to the same resurrection hope that they had access to. 
exhortation. It's not a be like them, act like them, but you have access to that same hope that they did. And this resurrection hope that is rooted firmly in the incarnate one Jesus who was born, who lived, who died, who rose again, who ascended to the throne where he sits right now. A hope rooted in that changes everything for us. And it profoundly changed Paul and equipped him to do what he did in this chapter. So in closing, go back two slides, please, to this closing prayer. I want to read this, and I want you, I want to read this meditatively. I want you to think. These are words from Paul. Again, think about all this that I've talked about. From Paul to uh, one of his letters to the church in Ephesus, but it's really, it's for the entire church. I want to read these words, and I encourage you to meditate on resurrection hope. Where is resurrection hope for you? And if you don't feel it, don't beat yourself up. Take that as a gracious opportunity to bring that to God and say, I don't feel this right now but where might it be? Would you reveal it to me? Where do you need resurrection hope in your life? Where are you lacking it? Where do you feel it? If you feel it somewhere, thank God for it. Think about this as I read these words from Paul to us. This is why when I heard of the solid trust you have in the Master Jesus and your outpouring of love to all the followers of Jesus, I couldn't stop thanking God for you. Picture Paul saying this to us, to Missio Dei. Every time I prayed, I'd think of you and give thanks. But I do more than thank. I ask. I ask the God of our Master, Jesus Christ, the God of glory, to make you intelligent and discerning in knowing him personally, your eyes focused and clear, so that you can see exactly what it is he is calling you to do. So you can grasp the immensity of this glorious way of life he has for his followers. The utter extravagance of his work in us who trust him. Endless energy, boundless strength. All this issues from Christ. God raised him from death and set him on a throne in deep heaven. In charge of running the universe. Everything from galaxies to governments. No name and no power exempt from his rule. And not, not just for the time being, but forever. He is in charge of it all. He has the final word on everything. At the center of all of this, Christ rules the church. The church, you see, listen to this. I love this phrase. The church, you see, is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts by which he fills everything with his presence. Amen. As Sean uh, brings around the uh, community elements, I encourage you to uh, meditate uh, on, these verge, on these verses. And as we, uh, once we're all served, we will take communion together. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up 
the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, by which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to keep to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all, all the saints. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake the one bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Please partake together after I have read the next passage. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, saying, This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Take and eat. Father, we thank you that you have not left us defenseless. That you have provided your word, your truth, to be our armor, to be our defense. Father, please, Help each of us to live into that truth, to have your radiant glory shine off of us so that all the world can see, and to have us take truth and light with us wherever we go. Amen.